Welcome to TechTastic, the podcast that explores the cutting-edge world of technology and its impact on society. New breakthroughs and developments are revolutionizing the world around us, presenting exciting opportunities as well as complex challenges. We'll explore the big ideas and key players driving these transformations as we seek to understand the implications of these advancements for our lives, our communities, and our planet. Join us on this journey of discovery and exploration as we navigate the fascinating and ever-evolving world of technology. This is TechTastic. Where unicorns roam free. Hit that subscribe button and join the conversation. I'm your host, Christian Hammer. And with me today, I have a very special guest, a longtime friend and a serial entrepreneur par excellence, former VC, my good friend, Bill Kalman. Bill runs a company called MobyNet, which we'll talk about in a second. But Bill, why don't you give everybody a little bit of your background? Just I'm a serial entrepreneur, a founder and CEO of uh, Tech Ventures, and I've been a former Draper Fisher Jurvetson affiliated venture capitalist as well. So I've been on sort of both sides of the table uh, and have served on a dozen tech venture boards as well. As an affiliate, we had several hundred million dollars of exits. I'm uh, originally from Palo Alto, California, sort of the epicenter of a lot of venture capital and tech world. And you grew up in the middle of it. You were just surrounded by it. Yeah, I, I joke I'm a product of Silicon Valley. <laughs> and I, I went to Reed College and had the same physics professor as Steve Jobs. I'm a bit younger than Steve, for sure. But uh, that fellow became the CTO of Next. And uh, <laughs> that's, that's what I learned for, to yeah, Next. <laughs> Yeah, that's where I learned to code from assembly language through others. And I uh, went from there on to Stanford Engineering for a master's into the um, Harvard Business School. So I've got more degrees than a thermometer. And you're kind of an OG in the uh, entrepreneurial thing too. Like you, you've been here from uh, even longer than I have. I've been doing it for 30 years and you were here before when I got there. Yeah, and you know, there's some really interesting things. I've been close to, had some kind of hand in the in the early stuff that then led to these different companies. One of them is, is Skype. When it got to that really cir circuitously, the tech that we were working on, I was a founding investor in a deal that was doing an artist-specific music station much like we know today as Spotify or Pandora, but before they were even conceived of, it was one of the first VC investments we made out of the fund that we raised called Timberline Ventures. And that was the DFJ affiliate where I, I helped uh, helped uh, other partners and Tim um, Draper establish that network that became enormous. It eventually had 135 professionals and 7 billion in management and was the number one early stage VC in the world for a time. Wow. Basically, this music deal ran into the pushback from the music industry, eventually the music and movie industry, but also the broadcasting industry. Uh, a radio station would pay 5% royalty for the opportunity to, to play music on the broadcast radio. And when we asked labels whether we could do the same and have an artist-specific channel like a Led Zeppelin channel, they said, you have to pay 10 times the royalty and pay us each a million. And it turned out that if you did the math, that was the same as saying no, because it wasn't economically viable. Right. Going all the way back to the beginning of uh, like the digital rights management issues online, you were there at the very epicenter of it, at the very, very foundation of it. The reason that I wanted you on the podcast was to talk through that, because one of the major issues right now with AI is like 
content ownership and intellectual property theft. And there's lots of like just churn on this subject. And when Bill and I got talking on a on a call earlier, he actually changed my mind on something that I was pretty profoundly like resistant to change on. So I brought him on to really talk in depth about that subject. But I do want to get us to MobyNet also, like because you've had this progression from that state, you know, that early venture that you did getting involved in that space. Scale, I think, largely was uh, dealing with a lot of the same issues, uh, and then MobyNet kind of came out of like a way of resolving a lot of those issues, if I remember right. Is that the what, what first? What did I change your mind about? Well, I, I thought of it as a very black and white issue. If I've created something, I have a style of my own, and I put it out into the world. Uh, any derivative work of that should I should be fully compensated for, and my intellectual property should protect with absolute like authority. You added new to it. It wasn't that you've completely flipped me around and made me say, oh, that is silly. But it was really one of the statements around royalty and where it came from and uh, the founding fathers and their discussion around intellectual property to begin with. Yeah, I get you. Let, yeah. let, let, me, let me walk through this kind of chronologically because the whole time period from when I funded that company, which was called at the time Infinite Music, and then renamed itself several times, it had actually been started to do the first digital downloads of CDs in 97, mind 97. You, by a venture capital mentor. And as I was raising this, the 60 million venture capital fund with Tim Draper to focus on Portland and Seattle deals primarily, um, but we did some in California too, Founding investor of Infinite Music, the late Tony Miotic, who'd been a Norwest Venture Capital partner, he asked me if I could recast the business plan. And I came up with this notion in 99 of artist-specific channels, because I love music and I thought, God, that'd be great to be able to tune in to an artist. And you couldn't, you know? Yeah. And and so we so we funded that plan to do that. And then we and, and being from Northern California or the tech area, we weren't from LA, which is really familiar with copyright being sort of the seat of the movie industry and much of the music labels in the United States. The two parts of California actually have sort of different outlooks on things and the technologists up in the northern part of the state would simply want to disrupt anything. <laughs> and, and so we thought, this is cool, we're going to have artist-specific stations. I didn't know honestly much about copyright, just trying to use the tech and the new internet to do that. That was a real serious learning experience and we began to learn about things like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is something that really enabled Google to happen because they were safe harbored. And that was very, very disruptive to many um, people that felt their goods should be protected by copyright. Newspapers, for example, and journalists were hugely disrupted by Google being safe harbored. Being safe harbored means that the copyright industry doesn't have the right to sue you if you're an ISP or an email provider or a messenger provider or a search engine that's centrally operated like Google, okay? Yeah, looking back on it, it seems like that was a mistake. Yeah, and I, I, and I had some view on that after I learned more and more about this topic. When the label said that to the company that they wanted 10 times the royalty rate of a radio station, and when you realize that the cost of goods sold of streaming was increasing with every listener, as opposed to a radio tower that broadcasted with a certain overhead of the power and overhead that you had for it when you got enough listeners to a broadcast station you would get into the money and be a profitable business you could never have a profitable business if half the revenue went directly to the labels 
at least by our math, with the economics at that time. So I told the, the CEO and the rest of the board that our, our VC firm couldn't put any more money in unless they got traction, somehow joined up with a corporate sponsor or you know did something to get a bunch of users so that there would be, be traction. And I went away over the holidays and I, I, I can't recall exactly whether it was 2000 or 2001. At the time, IBM was running ads saying that if you had the IBM moment, you needed IBM to help you with traffic on a website. <laughs> so I got back and the CEO said, we have the IBM moment. I go, you do? He says, yeah, we have 8 million users. The internet was about a tenth the size it is today then. Yeah, that's a huge fraction of the, of the internet at that point. Well, it's a phenomenally large number of users out of the box too. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I said, what did you do? And he said, well, we took the servers that you got us for making the webcasting and we put them on the open Napster network called OpenNap, a directory service called The Navigator. We put it under the musiccity.com website and we're number two in the world next to Napster. And I said, oh, Napster was being sued by the music and movie industry and the famous attorney boys was defending them. And so we got immediately got copyright counsel with Sonsini to advise the company and the board and the investors on, okay, what the heck does this mean that the team has decided to join the P2P fray? Now, if you think back at it, the, the reality was that Napster was providing people the opportunity to, to listen to any music they wanted to at any time. And we had proposed to do a, a streaming service that would be more like webcasting. And it was difficult, not impossible, but difficult to compete with something that would provide anything you wanted to listen to at any time that way yeah. and download it with a streaming service, especially when they said you had to pay so much to the to do it that you couldn't run a business. That's why I was gonna say that the company wouldn't get any more investment and would have to go out of business. But now we had 8 million users that quickly became 24 million users and then boys lost the case. We learned a lot about copyright in the in that short span because we had good advisors and we learned that there was a precedent from the vcr era called the sony betamax supreme court case where sony after going to the supreme court i believe they went three times or something like that but they definitely went came up with this bright line test that essentially said if you made a staple article of commerce a product and you didn't have any further relationship with the product you sold the consumer this product, okay? Like consumer electronics are like that. Yeah. And then it had some chance, not a proven chance, of substantial non-infringing use that it was legal to make a product like that. Even in the case of the VCR where the assertion was it was infringing by allowing people to record popular video like movies and to play them back and led to video rental business and so on. I also learned the copyright industry had come out of the monarchy, basically, is why royalties are called royalty. There was a publisher's guild before formation in the United States that was a permanent monopoly on something that was allowed to be published. And if you look way back, when Galileo published, he went through a Spanish Inquisition. And if you did publish something that wasn't making the monarch happy, for example, Queen Elizabeth, first Queen Elizabeth, have your yes. hand cut off or yeah. worse. So it was more of a, a mechanism to control what the populace with the Gutenberg press could print. And it was more an instrument of censorship. It really, it's hard to really say that it was that, that copyright prior to the formation of our country 
was there to inspire Mozart to make music or there to encourage the artist to create? Well, because it didn't really have a mechanism of distribution in some of those cases anyway, or at least not a, you know, Mozart in particular performing is different than getting the sheet music to Mozart and performing it yourself. And uh, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting. It's, it's a fascinating topic, right? Yeah. I mean, look way back. The apostles didn't need to have copyright to write the gospel and it got a lot of distribution. Sure. And okay. it was the, the, the idea itself had interest to people and so it spread. Well, but they didn't need to be paid to write the Bible. The whole idea that copyright and artists should be paid is, is an interesting one in and of itself that Thomas Jefferson actually ruminated on the Federalist Papers prior to writing the Constitution and being a founding father of our country, which was, you know, if I light your candle with my idea, am I any the poorer for it? I still have a burning candle that's lighting my room and you do too. Have I really lost anything by singing that song or by sharing my art or whatever else it is? So when he drafted the copyright clause together with the founding fathers, he cut the duration of copyright to 14 years from permanent. In England, it was a permanent copyright like trademark is today. You know, I'm sure there's some legal eagles who will hear this will say, wait, I've got a correction on that. But that's basically the understanding. <laughs> and and over the long time period, partly because of the money of lobbying from the industry that was profiting from the copyright under our constitution, it got steadily extended to where it's presently 140 years after after the creation. You have to have beyond the life of the artist before the copyright expires. It's, it's, it's a really interesting point. And it's really interesting when it applies to like commerce, when an individual can like now take the candle that you lit and go charge others to light their candles. Yeah. And yeah. And partly the, you know, partly the construct of copyright is enabling some of these things to happen because you have the recompense like in the recent news, right, where Marvin Gaye rights yeah. holder, it wasn't the family, by the way, as I understand it, sued Ed Sheeran. But this time Ed Sheeran won instead of when they sued Robin Thicke over his song, um, where they felt that the songs were derived from prior Marvin Gaye works. Yeah, where, where do you draw the edge on that? Because I know that the most recent one was about a chord progression versus, you know, versus a verse, I think. It's, it's a... I don't, yeah, it was more sound, but I, I, before digressing into what it means to mix and how all art is built upon the prior work, derivative, no matter what, in the course of human progress, the idea of the clause in the Constitution was that it was, it's for the betterment of the society. Congress shall have the power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discovery. Clause 8, Section 8, found in Article 1 of the United States Constitution. Yeah, so that's what it is. Purpose of, of this is to benefit society, not just science and the useful arts. It's been about a well over a century that various innovations would come along and then they'd be litigated and resolved one way or another by the copyright industry. It's a pretty litigious industry. When new things are developed, the industry comes forward and says, but wait a minute, what about this? And the latest one being AI, right? The player piano was sued. Radio stations were sued and Zenith executives in the 30s were viewed as pirates and trust dressed up as pirates when they were playing music on the radio. Um, music ultimately voluntarily licensed itself and organizations, BMI, CSAC and ASCAP then would collect roughly 5% royalty and distribute it out to 
writers or the publishers of the music. And I'm going to come back to that in, in a bit because I think that's a really interesting, interesting model. It's also something that Google's YouTube has apparently voluntarily done in splitting off advertising dollars to popular creators of YouTube videos. You need a way to incentivize people to create good, meaningful, valuable content, whatever, whatever that takes the form of music, video, artwork. And when you disincentivize them by taking theirs and taking away their ability to create a livelihood, you will stop the creation of those things theoretically. John Lee Hooker wrote, you know, it's in them, but it's got to get out. Let the boy boogie woogie. <laughs> you yeah, know, I, I, I get that. But at the same time, like you, if you took away all the income that somebody can make from the thing that they're passionate about, they're going to transition into being able to make a living into something they're less passionate about because you still have to eat, you still need shelter, you need all those things. There, there has to be a way to make sure that you can chase your passions, whatever they are, um, and make a living. And if you eliminate all the ones that are more of those enlightened intellectual activities or even invention and scientific discovery, if you eliminate all of them and say that now we have no protection for what you create, you have no way of making an income, then it just ceases to exist. With research, you know, the, the professorships at universities, they don't be doing research. They don't care about the, they're gonna make money off of their invention. Um, and in a lot of those cases, I think that the intellectual property rights problem becomes predatory in a sense. You know, we both have some patents and I think yep. there are there are arguments to the contrary, where, where professors would like to make money off the invention from their group or that they came up with. And certainly inventors in the wild or in corporations are trying to protect build moats around their business. Yeah, you and know, that's the principal reason like, you do within a business. But I was yeah. getting back to your like your apostles still would have written the gospels, right? So yeah. I think that that's there are places where that's definitely true today. People that are doing research on the cures for cancer, they care about curing cancer. Maybe they hope to get rich off of it, but for the most part, they're motivated by the curing of cancer piece. But they're getting paid to be there and do it anyway. They have a way of you know providing for themselves and their family regardless. With the arts, it's so much easier to take because an artist to be noticed has to put it into the wild anyway. If you create artwork, you're hoping that people see it. And if people have the ability to then take, copy it and or reproduce it and sell it and you don't get compensated for that, it eliminates your ability to continue to make a living off of that activity. So you're going to find something else to do. So that is all my, my, my whole point is you actually pointed out to me that there's a, there is a downside to copyright. You know, once it's into the world and people can benefit from it, shouldn't you want the maximum amount of spreading for it? It was the lighting the candle metaphor that really struck me. Yeah. Um, had Napster ordered to filter yeah and, and music city was advised that it it could provide a legal product for people to share files if it was a staple article of commerce like sony betamax what that led to was an effort to decentralize the directory service and let the software go out into the wild and never fall back to a central server directory or set of servers to essentially say that if you're an individual who wants to hear some something or see something, this other set of individuals has that content shared and you can download it from them. That centralized directory service was deemed infringing 
And that's what led the plaintiffs in that case, which was mu music and movie industry and publishers, to win in the sense that they, the Napster organization was ordered to filter out anything infringing from their centralized directory service. As I said, and this gets you to the decentralized internet in which uh, Moby is the center. Or right. To so it's, right. So we wound up being the first to massively decentralize peer-to-peer -peer at that company. I was simply on the board. That company managed to um, launch Morpheus with Kazaa on a protocol called Fast Track, and later would also deploy other decentralized protocols, notably Nutella. And so that company then, it wound up massively decentralizing communication between people worldwide for the, among the first times. ICQ had actually been an early P2P-like service built around instant messaging, but it wasn't quite as decentralized and peer-to-peer -peer as, as these products. And therefore, all the way through the Ninth Circuit, where the industry then shifted its its complaint to Streamcast Networks, as it was then called, and, and Morpheus, as well as Kazaa and ultimately the MGM versus Grokster case that went to the Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit Court actually declared that the software that we had released was legal. This caused tremendous you know, consternation in the music and movie industry. I was at the O'Reilly E-Tech conference at that time, and the, the ruling happened during the E-Tech conference, and there was a standing ovation for it. Because people basically felt that it was that they had their own personal library of content and that they should be allowed to share it with others. So this whole file sharing thing is actually what I think led to streaming as we know it today, because the industry thought it would be better for people to have a temporary stream and then have to find it again and in some cases rent it, and that they would have to buy it if they wanted to download it. And this is this harkens back to the CD, vinyl album, DVD, VCR, tape, sort of productized vision of digital goods. Conceptualizing that they could actually have done just as well by having effectively like a microtransaction per listen rental model, which is what it almost moved to. You know, artwork is now I think to a degree threatened by this AI, as you point out, and we'll get into that in, in a moment. I had a lot of time to think as the company was headed towards the Supreme Court and learn about the origins of copyright and how I felt about it. And what I learned basically is that in the limit, the um, sort of collision between copyright and the rest of us is inside the public library. If you want to see where this fascinating conversation continues, uh, join us on the next episode of TechTastic, and thank you for listening. I hope that you found it insightful, and I hope that you tune in next time. If you would like to be on the show, and you're an innovator, you're a technologist, or you're an entrepreneur, and you just want to be involved in the conversation, the best way to do so is to email me at hammer at techtastic.tech, and I'd love to have you on. So thank you, and hope you join in next time.